Section 20 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Edward Stillingfleet, The Irenicum of a Comprehensive Church, Part 1. The life of Stillingfleet does not belong to our subject. His main activity, as a theological writer and as a churchman, is associated with the Church of the Restoration and Revolution, to the defense and maintenance of which he brought something of the tolerant and enlightened spirit which he had learned at Cambridge, and which finds expression in the Irenicum, but with whose narrowness and meanness of policy he was, upon the whole, identified. In a certain measure he remained true to his early convictions, as the lengthened preface to the treatise on the unreasonableness of separation shows. He had nothing to do with the act of uniformity, his youth happily saved him from this, or with any of the persecuting acts of the reign of Charles the Second. Even in his controversy with Owen and Baxter he cannot be said to have occupied the illiberal side. But withal he lacked vitality of liberal conviction, and a generous trust in his own principles to save and bless the church for which he was so zealous. He was a specimen, in short, of many men, both churchmen and politicians, whose early liberalism degenerates with their advancement in life, under the pressure of those class feelings which grow with the growth of all but the most open, honest, and rational natures. Their liberalism is the result of education, or of temporary enthusiasm, or the excitement of the times in which they live. But it never works thoroughly into their reason so as to illuminate, control, and guide it. Traditionalism, in consequence, by and by regains ascendancy over them. The snares of office, or the deceitfulness of party, choke the good seed of liberal feeling, and gradually it wears away. And men of this stamp, who gloried in their youth in bearing some banner of reform, often become at last the most jealous guardians of official dogma, and the most unreasoning critics of new ideas. If Stillingfleet cannot be accused of formal apostasy from his early principles, his career as a rising churchman, his natural temper, and his somewhat cold, hard, and argumentative, rather than rational, turn of mind, easily inclined him to the winning side in his time, and made him in his later years look back upon the Irenicum as a mere youthful essay, conceived rather out of tenderness towards the dissenters than in the interests of truth and peace. Footnote. Quote, a book written twenty years since with great tenderness towards dissenters before the laws were established. Close quote. Preface to the Unreasonableness of Separation, 1680. End footnote. This is not the language of a man who thoroughly understood and prized the principles of religious liberty nor does the life which narrowed rather than broadened in sympathy, and which grew more limited and precise instead of more profound and comprehensive in its intellectual range, mingle in the thread of our history. The following bare statement of facts, therefore, must suffice as an introduction to our review of the Irenicum. Edward Stillingfleet was a native of Cranbourne, in Dorsetshire, where he was born in the year 1635. He was educated at St. John's College, Cambridge, and distinguished himself by his singular ingenuity and constant improvement. His course of study extended from 1648 to 1655, when the new school of Cambridge Divines, represented by Whichcote and John Smith and Cudworth, was in the full height of its activity. This of itself is sufficient to account for Stillingfleet's liberal leanings. Cambridge was now, rather than Oxford, the center of the liberal theological movement. The wave of rational thought had, in the course of ten eventful years, passed from the one university to the other, and there taken a wider shape and influence, extending not merely to ecclesiastical questions, but to the whole field of religion and the sources of philosophical and moral truth. 
the rise progress and results of the school known as the cambridge platonists await investigation in the meantime it is enough to fix and mark the significance of the fact that stillingfleet was educated in the midst of it he could not help catching something of the spirit which pervaded the place and if he did not come under its deeper influences yet both the origines sacre and irenicum show that his mind had been thoroughly awakened to the religious problems of his time and that he had learned something of the rational christian eclecticism through which alone these problems could have been solved fairly and the country saved from the disgraceful iniquities of the restoration Sillingfleet passed from Cambridge to be tutor to the family of Sir Francis Burgoyne in Warwickshire, and subsequently to Nottingham, as tutor to the eldest son of a Mr. Pierpoint, connected with the Marquis of Dorchester. Here he is said to have begun, presumably in 1656, the Irenicum. It was not completed, however, till three years later, and probably he made little progress with it till settled as rector of Sutton, to which living he was appointed by his earliest patron, Sir Francis Burgoyne, in 1657. He was episcopally ordained by Dr. Brownrigg, one of the ejected bishops, a fact of which much is made by the panegyrical biographer who has sketched his life in very dull and unmeaning outline as an introduction to the folio edition of his works. The young rector of Sutton was in the full flush of his well-trained faculties, fresh from the generous intellectual life of Cambridge, with his mind keenly alive to the ecclesiastical difficulties of the age. He felt that he could do something to help these difficulties. The Irenicum was the result. It was published in 1659, on the eve of the Restoration, and reprinted three years later, in 1662, the year in which the Act of Uniformity was passed. This was the answer which the age gave by a severe irony of criticism to his eclectic proposal. In the same year appeared his Origines Sacre, or A Rational Account of the Christian Faith as to the Truth and Divine Authority of the Scriptures and the Matter Therein Contained. The chief events of Stillingfleet's life henceforth are summed up in his successive promotions and controversies. He was appointed rector of St. Andrews, Holborn, in 1665, first a canon, and then dean of St. Paul's, 1680, and finally bishop of Worcester, 1689. He distinguished himself in conflict with the papists, the deists and atheists of the time, the Socinians, and the new school of philosophy represented by Locke. It is impossible not to admire, with Clarendon, the strength and vigor of ratiocination and the clearness of style and expression in his several writings. He is a skillful, well-trained, powerful controversialist. Whether he appears as a pseudonymous assailant of the papal religion and policy, or as an advocate of the foundations of Christian belief, or as a defender of the doctrine of the atonement or the doctrine of the trinity, which he considered to be imperiled by Locke's theory of ideas, he shows the facility, vigor, and hopefulness of a well-disciplined intellect, and a copious store of argumentative resources. He is a theological champion, an ecclesiastical giant-killer, who watches continually from the sacred ramparts for the foes of the church, papal, separatist, philosophical, and goes forth with elate and joyous heart to meet and overthrow them. But with all his vigor and clearness there are none of his writings which have much life of thought. They are clever, able, and were eminently successful in their day, but they lack the vital interest which only some spark of nature, some fire of passion, or some glow of meditative or speculative genius can give to theological polemics. His youthful essay is, in many respects, his highest work. It possesses nearly all the argumentative force, the masterly logic, of his later writings, while it is distinguished above them all by catholicity of spirit, by rapidity, animation, and consinity of treatment. The full title of the essay is, Quote, Irenicum, 
a weapon salve for the church's wound or the divine right of particular forms of church government discussed and examined according to the principles of the law of nature the positive law of god the practice of the apostles and the primitive church and the judgment of reformed divines whereby a foundation is laid for the church's peace and the accommodation of our present differences the keynote is effectively struck in the succession of mottos which follow on the title page first from the epistle to the philippians let your moderation be known unto all men, then from the letter of Isaac Casaubon to Cardinal Perron, and lastly from the treatise of Grotius on the relation of civil and ecclesiastical authority, pointing to the great distinction betwixt a jus divinum in the church and an authority which is merely regulative or expedient. The year 1659, in which the Irenicum was published, was a year of political perplexity and of the forecasts of coming change. The great protector had died in the previous autumn, and the reins of government were already falling from the hands of his feeble son. Before the spring was over, he had signed his demission, and retired into the private life for which alone nature had fitted him. The parliament and the army once more shared, but with very divided and jealous counsels, the supreme authority. It was obvious that the period was a transitional one. Monk was already meditating his march from Scotland common apprehensions were drawing the presbyterians and the older royalists together they remembered the miseries of misgovernment through which the country had come before the strong hand of cromwell was laid upon it and the special humiliations which they had both endured at the hands of military and parliamentary officers who valued neither presbytery nor episcopacy they began to feel the necessity of common action and even of softening in some degree their mutual asperities it was in such circumstances that the old idea of accommodation which Usher had conceived and Hales and Chillingworth would have welcomed, once more revived, and that Stillingfleet became its expositor. The character of the political situation suggested anew to thoughtful minds the possibility of an ecclesiastical compromise. Could not the advantages of episcopacy and presbytery be united on some rational basis of expediency? Is there anything so exclusively divine in either as to prevent this? Is there any use divinum in church government at all, in such a sense as to hinder wise men from acknowledging the force of circumstances and composing their religious differences? This was the important question which, in the face of approaching changes, Stillingfleet set himself to re-examine. In his preface he draws a highly colored picture of the evils which the long-protracted religious discord had produced. Quote, Controversies about religion had increased till they had brought religion itself into a controversy. Religion hath been so much rarefied into airy notions and speculations by the distempered zeal of men's spirits, that its inward strength and the vitals of it have been much consumed. Curiosity, that green sickness of the soul, whereby it longs for novelties and loathes sound wholesome truths, hath been the epidemical distemper of the age we live in, of which it may be as truly said, as ever yet of any, that it was seculum fertile religionis sterile pietatis. I fear this will be the character whereby our age will be known to posterity, that it was the age wherein men talked of religion most, and lived it least. Men being loath to put themselves to the trouble of a holy life, readily embrace anything which may dispense with that, and hence enroll themselves as parties, and attach a religious importance to the most trifling party distinctions. All the several parties among us, he continues, quote, have given such glorious names only to the outward government of the church the undeniable practice of the apostles, the discipline of Christ, the order of the gospel, and account only that the church where their own method of government is observed. 
from this monopolizing of churches to parties hath proceeded the uncharitableness which was constantly breaking out into open flame and the most violent heart-burning and contentions the only effectual remedy appeared to stillingfleet to be quote, an infusion of the true spirit of religion the revulsion of the extravasated blood into its proper channels thereby taking men off from their eager pursuit after ways and parties notions and opinions and bringing them back to a right understanding of the nature design and principles of christianity he explains christianity as a religion of peace and tolerance and sets forth in the spirit of chillingworth and taylor that the design of christ was to ease men of their former burdens and not to lay on more for the church therefore to require more than christ himself did or make other conditions of her communion than our saviour did of discipleship is wholly unwarrantable Quote, what possible reason can be assigned or given why such things should not be sufficient for communion with the church which are sufficient for eternal salvation and certainly those things are sufficient for that which are laid down as the necessary duties of christianity by our lord and saviour in his word what ground can there be why christians should not stand upon the same terms now which they did in the time of christ and his apostles was not religion sufficiently guarded and fenced in by him the grand commission the apostles were sent out with was only to teach what christ had commanded them not the least intimation of any power given them to impose or require anything beyond what himself had spoken to them or they were directed to by the immediate guidance of the spirit of god it is not whether the things required be lawful or no it is not whether indifferences be determined or no it is not how far christians are bound to submit to a restraint of their christian liberty which i now inquire after of these things in the treatise itself but whether they do consult for the church's peace and unity who suspend it upon such things without all controversy the main inlet of all the distractions confusions and divisions of the christian world hath been by adding other conditions of church communion than christ hath done would there ever be the less peace and unity in a church if a diversity were allowed as to practices supposed indifferent yea there would be so much more as there was a mutual forbearance and condescension as to such things the unity of the church is a unity of love and affection and not a bare uniformity of practice or opinion there is nothing the primitive church deserves greater imitation by us in than in that admirable temper moderation and condescension which was used in it towards all the members of it it was never thought worth the while to make any standing laws for rites and customs that had no other original but tradition much less to suspend men her communion for not observing them on the contrary the greatest latitude was allowed in the church of the first ages and he appeals with confidence to the well-known testimony of sozomen of cyprian augustine jerome and others footnote the passage from sozomen to which reference is made is often quoted stillingfleet translates Quote, they judged it and that very justly a foolish and frivolous thing for those that agree in the weighty matters of religion to separate from one another's communion for the sake of some petty customs and observations for churches agreeing in the same faith often differ in their rites and customs End footnote. the first he says who break this order in the church were the arians donatists and circumcellions while the true church was still known by its pristine moderation and sweetness of deportment towards all its members he expresses a hope that the church of england may evince its conformity to the primitive church quote, not so much in using the same rites that were in use then as in not imposing them but leaving men to be won by observing the true decency and order of churches whereby those who act upon a true principle of christian ingenuity may be sooner drawn to a compliance in all lawful things than by force and rigorous imposition 
which make men suspect the weight of the thing itself when such force is used to make it enter. Close quote. Sentiments of such sound wisdom and sense, uttered by a clever young ecclesiastic on the eve of the Restoration, show how far a higher spirit prevailed in many minds at this time. A rational theology had not been without its effect upon the country. Amidst the strife of opposing factions, its voice had been heard. For Stillingfleet is not to be supposed a man standing very much above or apart from his age, of independent and exceptional thoughtfulness. He was rather then, as he always was, a man with his eyes open to the signs of his time and the influences moving men's minds. We may fairly conclude, therefore, that there was not merely in Cambridge, but amongst many of the more generous and active-minded of the younger clergy everywhere at this period, an earnest desire for some compromise amongst religious parties, whereby peace might be secured and the church reconstructed upon a larger and a firmer basis than ever. The government of the church was, as it had been since the Reformation, the special difficulty. An unhappy controversy to us in England, Stillingfleet says, if ever there were any in the world. And this chiefly, he adds, because so few really, quote, understood the matter they so eagerly contended about. For the state of the controversy, as it concerns us, lies not here, as it is generally mistaken, what form of government comes the nearest to apostolical practice, but whether any one individual form be founded so upon divine right that all ages and churches are bound unalterably to observe it. This is the important question. Let it only appear that there is no form of church government unalterably binding, and the way is cleared for a compromise on the basis of expediency. Quote, Certainly they who have espoused the most the interest of a jus divinum cannot yet but say that if the opinion I maintain be true, it doth exceedingly conduce to a present settlement of the differences that are among us. For then all parties may retain their different opinions concerning the primitive form, and yet agree and pitch upon a form compounded of all together as most suitable to the state and condition of the church among us. That so the people's interest be secured by consent and suffrage, which is the pretense of the congregational way, the due power of presbyteries, asserted by their joint concurrence with the bishop, as it is laid down in that excellent model of the late incomparable primate of Armagh, and the just honor and dignity of the bishop asserted as a very laudable and ancient constitution for preserving the peace and unity of the church. Close quote. This was the ideal of a church advocated by many, and amongst others by the learned Casaubon in a passage which he quotes. Footnote. The passage is from the elder Casaubon, of course, and will be found in his Exercitationes de Rebus Sacris et Ecclesiasticis, published at London, 1614. End footnote. Such is the general design of the treatise, to show that, quote, there can be no argument drawn from any pretense of a divine right that may hinder men from consenting and yielding to such a form of government in the church as may bear the greatest correspondency to the primitive church, quote, and be most likely to heal the divisions of the Church of England. Abuses must be removed, and he, quote, dare not harbor so low apprehensions of persons enjoying so great dignity and honor in the church that they will in any wise be unwilling of themselves to reduce the form of church government among us to its primitive state and order, by retrenching all exorbitances of power, and restoring those presbyteries which no law hath forbidden, but only through disuse have been laid aside. He is sanguine enough not only to anticipate such self-denial and Christian prudence on the part of the bishops, but to believe that the dogmatic Presbyterians and Congregationalists will be thereby so softened as to look with respect to an order which they have hitherto the most slighted. There is something pathetic in this dream of the youthful rector of Sutton, in the light of the facts which so soon followed. 
if anything could make us think worse than we do of the restoration bishops and of all the legislation of that unhappy time it would be the thought that there may have been many who then shared stillingfleet's sentiments who honestly desired to see the church of england reconstructed not on a hierarchical but on a practically efficient basis the presumption we fear must be that after all the wise and moderate churchmen were greatly outnumbered by the violent the arbitrary and the ignorant so it has always hitherto been at every great crisis and the dream of a truly catholic church which should give play to every healthy energy of government as well as to every honest instinct of faith remains a dream stillingfleet was haunted with the idea of failure even while he wrote i make no other account but that it will fall out with me as it doth commonly with him that offers to part a fray both parties will perhaps drive at me for wishing them no worse than peace my ambition he adds in a spirit of apostolic meekness shall willingly carry me through this hazard let them both beat me so their quarrel may cease i shall rejoice in those blows and scars which i shall take for the church's safety End of chapter seven part one